Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I think only one other person in this whole room knows that today is Latere Sunday. It's an obscure church holiday, and the only other person in this room is Dr. Shepson. He knows that, but, and if you do too, I'll give you $8 after the service. But uh, uh, Latere is Latin, and it means rejoice, and somewhere along the line, the framers of the church calendar thought that Lent was so abjectly depressing that you needed to add a little life and relief into the season, and so here we are. We, we have these beautiful passages from the New Testament that remind us in the midst of all our introspection and questions and doubts and pains and spiritual disciplines and failures at spiritual disciplines that we're still really loved. And so we, uh, we're spending time rejoicing today. Well, I want to begin by telling you this beautiful interpretation that Rabbi Akiva gives us. Rabbi Akiva was the one who was functionally in charge with collecting the Midrashic traditions of Judaism, those traditions which had grown up outside of the Old Testament. And he was deeply moved by the death of Moses in Deuteronomy 34. You may remember Moses, because of a variety of somewhat minor crimes, was forbidden from entering the Promised Land, and so he stays outside. And uh, Rabbi Akiva writes a lot about this, and he finds the death of Moses to be quite moving. And he has this interpretation. I think it's a stretch, but it's beautiful. So in Deuteronomy 23, the text reads, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the mouth of the Lord. Now, Akiba makes a lot out of that phrase, at the mouth of the Lord, where Moses dies. And this is what he writes. This is his interpretation. There in the barren desert, Outside the land of promise, so far from Eden, where God used his mouth to breathe into Adam the breath of life, he, the eternal father, brings Moses, his wayward son, back into paradise with a kiss. I think that's gorgeous. And certainly we see that same kiss of God in Luke chapter 15, in the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. So I want to speak about this life-giving, respite-providing, profoundly unnerving parable of the prodigal son. So Jesus tells this beautiful story, this upsetting story about a very dysfunctional family who have intractable problems, just like your families have intractable problems. By the way, that's why this church exists. I'm only interested in people that have problems that are bigger than they are, which is every single one of us. If you had a problem that was totally under your control and you had the will to solve it, you would have done that by now. But because you haven't, you have intractable problems just like me. And Jesus is telling a story about this family with the problem of estrangement. You have one kid who's estranged geographically. You have another kid who stays home, but his heart is a million miles away in a dark exile. And so it's a family that's dealing with the intractable problem of estrangement. And I want to look at each of these family members, but I'd like to focus on the father 
because I think sometimes he gets short shrift in the treatments of this parable, and yet he is the epicenter. And I, I want to say that he's armed with a secret weapon. And I'll get into that later. But let's look at each of these family members. But before that, a little context. I included in our passage today verse 1. And I did that because it sets the scene of why Jesus is telling this story. And Jesus is having a mixed audience that day. By the way, one of the things that I love about this church is I generally get the feeling that uh, you like us. I like that. It's very helpful, right, that you don't hate us all the time. Uh, Jesus didn't have that luxury, you know. His audience was very mixed, especially that day. So it says in verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you have two audiences, right? And they're all intermingled, and there's the attracted and the appalled. And so to the attracted and to the appalled, Jesus tells these three parables. He teaches about the, uh, the lost sheep and then the lost coin and now the lost son or sons, plural. And the attempt that he's making, this beautiful attempt that he's making in this parable, is to reach the appalled. He's trying to seduce them into the kingdom of God with a beautiful love story about a family. He sets the parable up where the characters in the story are directly connected to his audience. These are real people that are standing in front of him, you know? They all reflect, they are all reflected in these two characters in the story. There's, of course, the younger son. What do we know about the younger son? Well, the first thing that he does in the parable, like we don't know like what toys he played with as a kid. We don't know what he likes to eat. We don't know about his job. The first thing we learn is that he goes to his father and makes the most disrespectful statement he could possibly ever make. We can miss this for, because our own culture doesn't think about these things in this way. But he goes to his father and essentially says, I, all the money that you have for me that's coming to me via inheritance, I want it now. There's a subtext to that question, which is, it would be better for me personally and financially if you would just drop dead of a heart attack now, or if your bones were in a box, or if your ashes were in an urn. My life would be a lot simpler if you were gone. And so can you function as if you're gone now? Also something scandalous here, he, um, he breaks um, the protocol of order. So he's the youngest child. You may know this, that within Jewish custom and within Jewish law, it was mandatory that the eldest child gets the lion's share and actually calls a lot of the shots regarding the inheritance. And here we have the young, impish punk demanding the money now before dear old dad has died. And so it didn't take him long to have the money and leave. He takes his briefcase full of cash and he goes on a very interesting road trip. He goes, what the text says, to a foreign land. Why is that important? Because in Israelite theology and theogeography, the most important thing outside of your relationship with God is where you lived. You lived in the promised land near the temple, near the place where you made sacrifice. Outside of your little chunk of geography, out of the few zip codes that belonged to Israel, the world was a hellish landscape of the damned. It was like land of the lost, you know? This, this is the outside world, the unclean Gentile world that makes our lives so harsh and terrible. And so what this young man is doing is he's breaking, breaking familial ties with his father and his brother, and he's deliberately leaving to get as far away as possible and to even break more ties. Not only does he break familial ties, he breaks moral and religious ties as well. He becomes 
uh, well, the text uses the word reckless. I think that's the PG-rated version of what he's doing. His brother clarifies the matter later. His brother's guessing that he's engaged with prostitutes, and he's, he's sort of involved in the red light district of wherever he is. But notice, uh, notice that as he's living recklessly, whose money is he spending? It wasn't originally his own, right? It was his father's money that his father earned with his own labor and sweat equity. And now he's taking all of that inheritance, hard-earned through the years, and he is gambling it away, shooting it up in his veins, you know, sleeping with it, so to speak. But he's wasting it away. He's living recklessly. And then what happens when you live recklessly is you get stupid. It's really true, by the way. When you push against reality, as I said last week, reality pushes back at you. Like, it's very foolish because when you act completely recklessly, you can't afford to do it forever. And then you do a death spiral with your life and you start losing things, losing things that are incredibly important to you. And many of us in this room know what that's like because we went through this, this period where we were going to say everything we were raised with is complete garbage. And so, like, let's torch it and see what happens, right? Uh, some men just like to see the world burn. So, you, you know, you, you light it on fire like the Joker just to see what happens. Um, and then you realize, uh, oh, crap, I burned my house down, right? I mean, but, but you can burn your life down very easily, and that's what he's done. He's completely spiraling, so he becomes homelit and desperate in the midst of a famine. So there are no crops that are being grown. He can't, like, glean from the fields. And the only place that has an, a, a, a job opening is a Gentile farmer who raises pigs. You may know, you probably do, that pigs are unclean animals within Israelite theology. They represent chaos and disorder within creation for a variety of reasons. And the problem is that um, he, he can't um, kill and eat the pig, probably because there's a supervisor nearby, and he can't eat the garbage that's given to feed the pigs because there's a supervisor nearby. And so he's there uh, longing for the food, but he, it's not payday yet, so he can't afford anything. And it's, you, maybe some of you have been hungry. There was a period of time after my parents' divorce where we couldn't afford groceries for a few weeks, and some people dropped them off on the porch, which was amazing. But I remember back then what it was like to go to bed without dinner. Like, we went to bed hungry. I remember that. I had to take Tylenol because my stomach was hurting so badly. Well, maybe you've been there, too. Well, that's where he is, only it's worse. So he's covered in pig matter, and he's, you know, he's wallowing away. And he comes to uh, this place of mental, spiritual, existential sobriety after nearly starving. The text says he comes to himself. He arrives at himself. Have you ever had an enlightenment like that where you start seeing yourself? It's a, it's a very difficult day. When a man sees himself for who he truly is, when a woman sees herself for who she truly is. But I think it's interesting, that, and the Greek in the text is very clear, he has to come to himself before he comes to God. Now, it's true that his father's love precedes his self-awakening, because his father's love came from the beginning. But he had to then come to himself and see his life for the mess and the destruction that it was. Um, and that's what happens, you know, all the bright lights and the lusty extravagances do lose their luster and then you begin to see uh, and and it drives him to this hard pragmatism this is what he says he like thinks out loud how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but i perish here for hunger with hunger i will arise and go to my father and say you know i've sinned against heaven and you but notice his this isn't really full-blown repentance because his pragmatism comes first not doing well. I can't expect to go home and dad to pretend like it's fine because he won't do that. 
but maybe I can be like a slave because his slaves aren't treated too badly. You know, like they eat, and I'm not eating. So I'm gonna go home and I'm rehearsing a speech, and I'm gonna give Dad the speech, and maybe he'll be flexible and treat me like a non-relative, like a slave. Yeah. So, who is this younger son? Well, he's half of Jesus' audience that day. He's, he's all the hedonists in the world, you know? The people that are, uh, to quote uh, Horace, they're the hogs of Epicurus's herd, you know? They, li- they like needles, and they like experimentation, and they like hookups, and they like, they like Tinder, and they, um, they lie on their Tinder profiles and say they just want a date, but they don't. They want other things. They're, they're also really loud. Uh, they, they don't keep their house clean, their yards clean. They scream at night until you have to call the cops. Sometimes they hit their children. They allow their children to watch Freddy Krueger movies when they're six. They, they waste a lot of money and goodwill, and they break hearts left and right. They just devastate the world. Well, that's the younger son. But then there's the elder son. He comes in later in the story, at the end of it. What do we know about him? We know a lot about him. The first thing we learn comes in the first few verses of our parable. We learn that he's extremely wealthy. He's very wealthy because he received half of his father's money and property at the very beginning of the parable because his father divided his wealth amongst his two sons. And so right from the start, he has a lot of money. But notice what he does with that money. He must invest it or something because he keeps his job in the field. He, he doesn't retire, and that's what I would do, by the way. Now, I love you all, but like if somebody said, Ethan, here's $80 million, I'd be like, I love this church, and, and Dr. Shepson, best of luck. Like, I, I, you'll do a great job. I, uh, uh, you know, I really want a yacht. I don't know. I, wanna, I joke about Fiji, but I want to go sometime. And, uh, so, but he, he stays working in the field. Isn't that nice? He thinks to himself, you know, I do have all this money now, but... You know, I like hard work, and I like the reward of a, the internal reward and respect of a good, hard day's work. And I, I like the sense of self that it gives me, and it builds character, and character is very important to me. It gives me a sense of justice. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and, and I, you know, I'm going to earn my way. And my father tells me to do something, I say, yes, sir. My mother tells me, well, she's not in the story, but I assume it's yes, ma'am, right? But he's very devoted. Uh, he's also hypersensitive to, to injustice. How do I know? Because he complains about injustice. Two bits of injustice, actually. The first is toward himself. He stands up for his own dignity, doesn't he? He's like, you know, where's my party? I didn't get a party. You never gave me a Starbucks gift card. I never, what is, what is this? Like, he gets beef wellington, and I don't get anything. I did everything right, you know. Every time you made a demand, I met the demand. But he's also mad about the brother's treatment, right? And then here's this idiot, this horrible human being who ruined your good name, who took all your money, or at least half of it, and who wasted it on hookers, and, and you treat him like he's the king of England. You bring him in. You dress him up. You give him jewelry. You kiss him. What is wrong with you? Obviously, there's something defective in your character, dear old dad. Because you shouldn't treat him that way. It's unjust. He's actually far more angry with the father than his younger brother. And he's also motivated by comparisons, right? 
Notice he doesn't measure his own righteousness by the father's righteousness. He measures his own righteousness by his brother's righteousness or lack thereof. And therefore, he feels very good about himself. I know no people in this room have ever done that with a sibling, like compared yourself with their achievements and found yourself either wanting or succeeding, right? But that's what he does. And then I want you to notice one more thing about the elder son. He has an unknown fate. Most of Jesus' parables are mysterious, but they tie up at the end very nicely. This one doesn't. It's like the last chapter was never written. We don't know what happened to the punk. Maybe he said, you're right, I'm an idiot. I'll go into the party and learn to dance for the first time in my life. Or, you know, I want to, maybe he punched the brother. Or maybe he met a girl and calmed down. Or maybe he, uh, or maybe he went to Madrid and just got away from the family and, you know, did the same thing that the younger brother did. But we don't know. It ends openly, and that's very deliberate. Jesus is such a genius, right? He's doing that deliberately to address the other people in the audience, the grumbling component to say, this is you. Can you not see that I'm addressing you? And your fate is not written in the stars. You're not, you don't have to like be damned. He's trying to woo them in by begging the question, right? Well, this is the younger son and the elder son. And then we have this father, who I think is far more controversial than either of his sons. Uh, you know, this is a patriarchal society. We talk now about the patriarchy a lot. I, I don't know. But I do know that back then, I mean, it was far more emphasized. And respect to one's father as the head of the household was not only expected, it was legal. Like in the Old Testament, if you had an incorrigible child without any repentance for a goodly season, we may not like this, but there was like a death sentence for that. It was a very serious matter, not only reflected in the Fifth Commandment, but reflected in the Torah more broadly. And that's what makes this father so wild and odd and culturally scandal-clad, and from my perspective, beautifully marvelous. Uh, notice what he does, this wild dad. He's extremely generous, like wastefully generous, because when the younger son impertinently demands his money up front, the father gives him the money and does more than give the one who requested it the money, gives away all his money and property to his two sons. Essentially, the father in that moment, who was originally the benefactor, became the dependent. That's why he says later in the parable, all I have is yours. It was legally true. He was also willing to be publicly disgraced without becoming resentful. He gave his stuff away. His son ruined the family name. His sons, both of them, were rude, horrifically disrespectful. And yet, he took it, took the disgrace. He was also hopeful because the text says while the younger son was still far off, the father saw him coming. That's not accidental. There's a beautiful emotional undercurrent in that passage. It means that he was expecting something, that maybe someday I'll see a figure walking down the sidewalk who looks a little familiar. And so I'm going to sit out on the porch every morning with my Starbucks and wait and wait and wait, and hopefully I'll see that figure again. And then he's emotive. Whenever he sees that shadowy figure, he doesn't send a servant to say, in this family, we believe in boundaries. Sorry, 
you, you've made your bed, you lie in it. Like you need to live far away for 10 years until you prove yourself. And then once you get a good job, build back your reputation and pay back dad what you owe the family, then we'll talk. No, the dad does something insane. He runs. First, he's filled with compassion. The compassion compels him physically to run. Now, they actually did this. You may know this, that they, they wondered, like, how, how uh, when Caiaphas, the high priest, was wearing all his garb, like, how much did it weigh? It was 40 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, this, the, the wealthier you were, the more clothes you wore, right? And you're very expensive, flashy Versace garb. But the problem is that because of that, nobody would run. Because run, running in those clothes was seen as it, it was too hard. And it was also undignified. This father, though, he's not interested in his own indignity in the moment. He runs toward the dung-covered, shoeless, homeless man that he recognizes because he could never forget that face. And so he runs toward him and embraces him and kisses him. What did the law require him to do? To permit an execution. Not now. He runs, embraces, and kisses him. And then the father, much to his credit, is a terrible listener. He doesn't listen well. I love that. He ignores his rebel son's prepared speech. He made a very sophisticated political speech to his father. They had even dashed in some piety. You know, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And then the dad interrupts him and says, I know, you're saying a lot of things. We're going to have a party now. And it's filet for everybody. Beef Wellington. Like, we're all, it's going to get crazy here. Or the Jewish version of Beef Wellington. It's very good. And, and so you notice what he does. He's treating this disgraced and disgracing hedonist better than a son. Not just a slave, but better than a son. Like royalty, the best robe. That means the robe that's better than the dad's. The thing that he would wear on Christmas and Easter, you know? Put that on him and give him the signet ring of the family to show that he belongs and give him shoes and kill a big cow. And it's going to get crazy. Um, but notice, don't forget the father's treatment of the elder son the workhorse of the family. He, what does he do? He goes to him. He pleads with him. He listens to him. He endures his pouting and his outright contempt. And notice the father never says one scolding, contempt-sodden word to either one of his kids. Not one. I think there's a lesson in that. The scriptures speak about the dangers of hedonism as well as the dangers of grumbling. The scriptures also speak about a merciful, compassion-ridden father who loves hedonists and grumblers. And both sons are loved, even though their pathologies are very different. I want to say that the father is moved by a secret weapon. That secret weapon is written a lot, uh, about a lot by the Apostle Paul, and it's heralded as very key to the Anglican church. And that secret weapon is imputation. Imputation. It's a big theological word with the most beautiful meaning possible. Imputation teaches this. It is when you treat someone with the highest possible dignity, even though their behavior would normally require just the opposite. Justice would require that you treat someone as they deserve. Imputation says, you are seen by me as impeccable and as beautiful and as royal 
and is important and is steady and is true. This is how the father treats his sons, both of them, with love that they do not deserve, with grace and kindness that they have not warranted. Tim Keller says that the father in this story is the real prodigal, because the word prodigal means to spend exhaustively. And the only one who really does that in this parable is the one who bears the pain of financial breakdown of pain and of indignity. But that is the secret weapon of God that is utilized, not just against people in a story, but against your person in this very moment. God's secret weapon is that he moves in closer. He moves in closer. He walks your way in this moment with imputing love. We may think that God does not like us or that God hates us or that if there is a God at all, that God is at best disinterest. That's not the one who's embodied in Christ. Um, let me offer a story about my own dad. I love my dad, uh, but my dad and I, we are like polar opposites on almost everything. Uh, our personalities could not be more different. My personality has been significantly shaped by my very Italian wife. You may know that in Italian families, they hide their feelings about 3% of the time. Like, you can totally read them. It's nice because they don't lie. They just scream, right? Um, but, but my family, we are German, English, and Irish, which means we don't have feelings. And, 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 but we have ulcers, but we don't have, because we can't express ourselves. That's why we're all in therapy. But, um, but yeah, but, but, but my father, I always joked, I said, dad, you're, it's like you're made of wood. Like you don't ever have feeling. You don't express. He was not the, I love you, dad. I've never heard that. He doesn't hug. He doesn't touch humans. So, uh, uh, so, so when I met my wife's family, I learned a lot of things. Um, so this is a story about my dad, uh, who my, my father and my mother divorced when I was 12 and, uh, the divorce was rough, but their life afterward was fairly amicable. They got along well after a few years and then eventually remarried and they did okay for themselves. Um, but my mother, and some of you know this very sadly, uh, on September the 11th, a few years ago, uh, died of an addiction related issue. And, uh, it, it happened suddenly, somewhat unexpectedly was one of those events that gave me kind of an emotional whiplash. And in the midst of that whiplash and that just startled sense, and then in that shock, I was asked to do the funeral for hundreds of people that would come, you know. And so some of you were there, in fact. So I agreed to do it and uh, to preach. And I got through it fine because I was still whiplashed and in shock. But I, I did it. And it was a great honor for me to do that. But then most people left and... A few of us, just my most immediate family, gathered at the graveside in which they take the casket and lower it in front of you. And when it then rests on the bottom, you say like a prayer and you throw in dirt and you say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So there I am standing at the head of this casket. It's lowered in and there are words that you read. Because in Anglicanism, we, we read. Uh, we read a lot of things. And I read, Into the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, we commend our, our sister Kimberly and commit her body to the ground. But then the whiplash stopped. And I realized, this is it. 
No more wildly fun birthday parties because of her. No more unpredictably awkward conversations because of her. No more knockdown dragouts after which we could apologize and eat pie. No more babysitting my kids. No more wrap-up conversations where we tie up all the loose ends. It's done. And because it hit me at that moment, I couldn't finish the prayer. Totally stuck in time. I opened my mouth and no words came out. And that lasted about 45 seconds. And it was, I suppose, very awkward for everybody else, darting their eyes toward me like this, like, like willing me to read with their face. Like, <laughs> right? And then my dad, whom I had believed was made of wood, did something he has never done in his whole life. He came up behind me and put his callousy hands on my shoulders and just rested them there. Which was his way of saying, I'm here. You can do this. And he just stayed there. And I came to myself and said the words, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now, that familial movement reminded me of something even grander, which is we have a father who approaches us, who comes close, who walks our way, who doesn't wait until we're ready or noble, but he walks toward us. He walks toward us and, and uses his secret weapon of imputing love says essentially to us, I don't see you as you see you. Because my eyes, my eyes have blood in them. <laughs> my eyes see through the crimson tide of the cross. And I see you with the, all the beauty, beauty and dignity of my own son. So I have uh, two thoughts to end this parable with, two obligatory words. One is something about the audiences and something about the father's secret weapon. There are two main ways to be estranged from God and the people in this room, the people that you live with, your families back home. And they are hedonism and criticism. Hedonism is when you live for momentary pleasure, no matter what it costs anyone, even ourselves. Or criticism, you believe in God, you have very well-defined boundaries and categories of right and wrong. But what undergirds some of those interests isn't so much love, but red-eyed judgment, gritting, well-worn teeth, at all the losers who didn't make good choices like you. Well, God's verdict on both groups is rather strong. It comes from Romans 3. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. No one seeks after God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. The next time we utter a critical word about somebody else, realize we have no legs to stand on. Because if the Lord counted what was amiss in our lives, who could stand? Certainly not the hedonist and certainly not the critic. We are all laid low by the tripwire of the law. But notice the father moves in closer and he is armed with the secret weapon of imputation or what we could call unconditional positive regard. That's how we get healed, by the way, in life. How we get healed 
as that we become as we are regarded to be. It's the power of the word of regard that comes first, and that has a shaping formative effect. So Eric Rhodes, our former assistant rector here at Grace, uh, I was dealing with somebody, uh, nobody here, don't worry, because uh, then if I preached it, they would know who that is. Nobody here um, who had this very pharisaical bent. They were driving me crazy. They were hyper-opinionated. They would just pick apart everything, and I couldn't stand them. Every time I saw their name via email, I would just shudder inside. Um, and I thought to Eric, I'm like, how do I scare him off? That was my first response. Did you? And by the way, you can laugh, but you felt the same way. Like there are lots of people that you wish you could vaporize, but you you have you don't yet have the technology. Um, so how do I scare him off? And then Eric, with his wry smile, looks at me and says, "Oh, Ethan, you could try practicing your own theology." <laughs> I mean, I just I'm like dying inside. He said, what this person needs more than anything is the last thing you want to give them. They need imputation. And then he said these beautiful words, which I've never stopped saying, and I use them all the time. He said, we do not become treasure unless we are first treated like treasure. The only way I'm going to love you and the only way you're going to love me is not based only on the just merits of the situation, but based on this idea of imputation, where I see you, begin to see you somehow as the Lord sees you. And when I began treating this person that I previously wanted to vaporize with a little more imputation and grace, not as he was, but as God would see him, I'm telling you, it was like magic. The dynamic and energy between us totally changed. How I positioned my body around this person changed. How I looked at them changed. How I prayed for them changed. How I spoke to them changed. And then how they spoke to me changed. And it was like magic. All the antipathy melted. And now I can honestly say, not in a, not in a facile way, but in a real way, that I actually love this person. Because when we are regarded as treasure, we become treasure. So because of the merits of our true elder brother, the one named Jesus, your sins have been completely, entirely, and irrevocably borne away. And the father with his ruby red vision imputes to you the endless and undying dignity and strength and innocence of Jesus Christ. To steal a line from a long dead but very wise rabbi, there in the barren desert, so far from Eden, where God used his mouth to breathe into Adam the breath of life, he, the eternal father, brings you, a wayward child, into paradise with a kiss. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your